Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I mean, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow I'm still here. I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together. Because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. All right, back here on the show. Welcome back to Out of Patience. This is Matthew Zachary. And as usual, a quick reminder before we get started, if you're on Apple Podcast, and I hope you like the show, how about a review, a rating, something nice, or say nothing at all, as my parents told me when I was seven. So excited for today's show. I've wanted her to be a guest of mine for a very long time. She's an extraordinary human being. Lisa Sims Booth is the executive director of the Smith Center for Healing in the Arts. And for the cheap seats in the back, my listeners may know, I've had someone else on the show from that place. Dr. Julia Rowland, who was the original director of the Office of Cancer Survivorship at the NCI back in the 90s. This is a cool place. I was part of it. They hosted the first Stupid Cancer Happy Hour in D.C. in 2007. Shanti Norris is their first executive director. It's a great space. If you live in D.C., check them out at the Smith Center. And if you're not in D.C., they do virtual because hashtag pandemic COVID. It's a great place. Anyway, Lisa is also the former senior director for patient and public engagement at the Biden Cancer Initiative. She has worked for Michael Milken, the Faster Cures Initiative. She's just got this extraordinary way to express what it means for survivorship, how far we've come in the last 25 years, COVID lessons learned for nonprofit leaders, cancer awareness. Are we done with awareness? I think we're done with awareness. Who doesn't know that cancer exists? What is prevention? How do we talk about obesity, which is kind of a bad thing to talk about, but yet, is it something we can have a conversation about? And what kind of responses did she get from the community during the pandemic about mental health and isolation and the need for peer-to-peer support? Enjoy the show. Lisa Sims Booth, I have to apologize for it taking so long to have you as a guest on my show, but I'm so appreciative of your time today. Oh, I'm delighted to be with you and no worries. I know that they're doing so much and there's so many people to talk to you who are doing great work out here. So first for the listeners, I want them to know I've had Julia Rowland on this show before and I met Julia 15, 16 years ago. She was the original executive director of the NCI's Office of Cancer Survivorship. She now is part of the Smith Center for Healing in the Arts in D.C., and now you are the executive director of the Smith Center for Healing in the Arts. So I love how we all kind of travel in the same circles. Yeah, it is amazing how it all just kind of circles back, right? And people just cross each other's paths and keep crossing them. Yeah, and, and I, I have a wonderful history with 
the Smith Center, back when it was just called the Smith Center, with Shanti Norris, the I think yeah, the founder founding, of the, the whole founding thing. ED. Yes. Yeah, and it was in the early days of I think it was even before Stupid Cancer when it was called I'm Too Young for This, and I had a bunch of young adults coming out of Georgetown cancer patients that wanted to have an event, some kind of like, can we have a cancer party? Because there weren't such things as cancer parties. So we had it at the Smith Center. Like, a, like I think 30 of us showed up for this, like we called them stupid cancer happy hours back then. Can't get away with that today. But she was like the first, come on in, the water's great. And such a fabulous relationship was born. So I'm, I'm a huge fan, brand ambassador for what you guys do at the Smith Center. But let's tell the listeners what you do at the Smith Center. Well, thanks. You know, Smith Center is a really special organization. I think those people that cross our doors on U Street in DC, you really feel that. And it came, you know, from our founder, Barbara Smith Coleman, who's a local DC artist who had gone through a cancer journey with her a family member, had then gone on a couple of retreats and found some real healing uh, for herself through that journey with her family and her own, and then really wanted to start something that in the DC area that was going to help patients and help people go through this cancer journey. So here we are now, 25 years later, it's our 25th anniversary. And we sort of carry the mantle that Barbara started and the help that she wanted to bring. And I think the biggest way to talk about this is we don't want anyone to go through this who feel like they're alone. And so we build community and we're a space where you can come. We offer all sorts of programs that really don't just think about your physical well-being, but also your mental, spiritual, the whole person. We really want to support you in your journey. And we talk a lot, healing is in our title, but we don't mean healing in a sort of curative medical sense, but we mean healing on the inside. Healing is going to help you grow in this process. Healing is going to give you the grace, the resilience that you need to walk through this journey and to come to your own decision around healing, whatever that might look like for you, because it's different from everybody. It's a very individual decision, but we offer support groups. We offer creativity classes. We offer yoga. We have patient navigation. So if you want to talk to someone, help you sort out what's going on with you, we really have a focus on arts and the power of arts and healing. So we have an art gallery that's part of the center. So as soon as you walk through the door, you're kind of awash in the art and that peaceful, serene kind of feeling that we know art can bring you. And so immediately you walk in and if you've come in and you're frazzled or you've had a rough day, or maybe you've had treatment earlier in the week or whatever's going on, the atmosphere immediately starts to lower your blood pressure. And then you can come in, you can do a yoga class or do something else, go to a support group. So we really offer a wealth of things that I could go on and on and on about. But I think the bottom line is you're going to come to a place where you can find solace, you can find community, and you can tap into maybe creativity or another interest that you didn't know you had. And so that's what you can find when you walk through our doors. I love it. And it's just so necessary. And, and just for the record, this is my 25th cancerversary, 2021. So I'm as old. Actually, the hole in my head where the tumor used to be is as old at the Smith Center. We need to celebrate that. Our anniversary as well as your cancer anniversary and all the wonderful work that you have done, you you have so enriched and blessed the community. So I just want to say thank you for your perseverance, your continued work that you've been doing, and of course that you're for your continued good health. And I appreciate that. And you're you're part of the narrative. And in the Cancer Mavericks, you know, the documentary that we're promoting, 
it is all about how the people are the story. The science is one part of it. Clearly, we would not be where we are today without the science. But in 1996, that was the dawn of survivorship. I know that NCCS was founded in 1986, as we talk about, I think, in episode two. But this idea that there needs to be something for the people and not the disease, that this is just such an emblematic thing that needed to exist, and it still exists. It's unfortunate we still need things like this to exist, but it just speaks to the fact that we will never, I hate double negatives, we will never not need human interaction and human peer support to give us the quality of life and the lifestyle we, I would say the dignity we deserve above and beyond what we're dealing with from a disease perspective. That's absolutely right. And I think the thing that we need to think about, you know, and I haven't personally had this experience, although I've walked through a cancer journey with my mom, but you get that diagnosis, any diagnosis, but a cancer diagnosis, I believe in particular, and your whole world has just been completely upended and shifted on its axis. And so who do you talk to then? You know, your family is going through their own issues with what's just happened. The doctors, of course, are going to give you whatever they, they can, but having a community where people can know what you're walking through because they're walking through a similar journey or have walked through it. I think that's why that community support, knowing that you can come together um, has been so special. We had all of our programs normally are in person at Smith Center, but of course, due to the pandemic, we had to shift everything to virtual. And so because of that, we are now connecting with different people. And we had started a book club. And so one of the young women in the book club, uh, based in the DC area, had another young woman show come from New York to come to the book club. Well, it turns out they have similar cancer diagnoses, both young adults, and they connected via the virtual over the Zoom, and they've now become really close friends. And they never would have met each other if, if that space for them to come together wasn't there. And they now have another peer that understands some of what they're going through. And that's what I get so much joy out of, just knowing that we've made for one day that person day just a bit brighter or a bit better, or they were able to make that connection. I joined the book club, actually. I'm a horrible person. I'm always behind on the book. I'm never, I'm never where I'm supposed to be, but I come anyway. And I just love to talk to everyone and hear what they're thinking. And we delve and some of the books we've delved into have been pretty serious and pretty heavy, but the dialogue and the conversations have been so enriching. And just, I just love that. I love that connection with people and to be there for that. It's kind of a bizarre statement to say the good parts of the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like you're telling me what I've been hearing from many, many other nonprofits that do survivorship and psychosocial peer-to-peer in person, which is that the almost like the mandatory pivot to virtual really just expanded your footprint, correct? It absolutely did. And for us in a, in a major way, because we were somewhat limited by the physical space of Smith Center. And we have now been able to greatly increase the amount of programming we offer because we just need to get another Zoom account. And so the world of virtual has just opened us up to be able to offer so much more programming. And most organizations perhaps were lessening what they were doing. No, we actually added more. Like we, that book club was new. That's a pandemic. Writing things we've started now, writing groups. We've just added new programs because the need was so great. One of our uh, community said something very early on in the pandemic, which I thought was really powerful. And they were like, we were already in a crisis. 
And now we're in a crisis within a crisis. And so I, and I heard that it really touched me, but I felt like we can be here for them in this double crisis, you know, to the best of our ability. And I'm really proud to say that we've kept the doors open. No one's lost their jobs and we've been continuing to be able to serve. I want to get to nonprofit management and leadership during a pandemic, things we just haven't said since 1918 before there were nonprofits. But I want to talk about what trends did you start to see during the pandemic from the community in terms of isolation on top of isolation? You said the <laughs> the crap within the crap that they're already dealing with in terms of mental health and depression and anxiety. Do you Did you get a sense that the cancer community felt that much more in danger from the pandemic and how were people discussing that and dealing with that? Absolutely. I think there was, because there was so much that was unknown and people who are already, you know, dealing with immunosuppression because of treatment and already being fairly cautious perhaps about what they're doing. And now you add on this other you know, thing out here that you can't see, you don't, I'm not sure we're not in the beginning, we weren't even sure how it was being transmitted. We didn't know what was going on. So that anxiety level was extremely high. And so we did see a lot of people, you know, coming in and talking about how stressed out they were, how anxious, how, how they just wanted to, to talk to people and just figure things out. And that's really why we started adding the book club and some of these other things, just giving people Number one, something to galvanize around. Hey, let's read this book together. Let's do this. Because we know community and human connection is so powerful. And that's really one of the reasons we wanted to do that. But the anxiety level and the stress level was extremely high. And I would say that is extremely high for not only our community, but certainly from our standpoint, and I think from a nonprofit management, my standpoint, my anxiety level was extremely high as well, because I was trying to do everything that we could in our team to make sure that we were there and that we could remain there. And, and, and we just weren't sure what was going to happen. You know, we were like one day we were open and the next day we were closed and it was like, what do we do now? And quickly we just started to pivot and, and we're still here. I mean, it kind of begs the question when things are getting back to normal, we're taping this in late May of 2021 and are things getting back to normal? People are vaccinated. And at least I, I read, I think yesterday, half the country is now fully vaccinated, which is good. We'd like to get more than half the country fully vaccinated. But do you see some kind of return to normal where you will have hybrid events in person again with people chiming in over Zoom? And have you seen any hesitancies in the cancer community from people who have been vaccinated, that they're still kind of, you know, post-traumatically stressed from this? Well, I, you know, that is that is the question that we're starting to wrestle with now. And we, you know, we're starting to think through our reopening plan. Our D.C. area is, everyone is starting to lift all precautions. I think D.C., I think tomorrow is, everything is lifted. I think Mer parts of Maryland, where I live, also lifting everything. So all of a sudden we've gone from like, we're doing this, we're doing this, wear your mask, do this, do this, to like, oh, everything is back to full capacity. And so it's just like, whoa, wait a minute. Um, we're taking a very thoughtful approach and I'm, we're actually going to be issuing out a survey. We did one early on in the pandemic to find out what people were thinking, how they were feeling. And we're going to do another one as we start to gauge how we're going to return. We want to take into account people's health concerns. We want to understand what their fears are, what they're, what they're excited about. Do they want to come back? What do they think, you know, and so we're just, 
we're treading very carefully as we try to open things back up because the last thing we want people to feel safe and we are making some physical shifts in the Smith Center just to try to help people feel a little bit better about things. So we're doing some things in our restrooms and our kitchen area to alleviate some of the touch points, even though we know that touch things weren't exactly the way that things are being spread, but we want to alleviate all of that. We want people to feel as safe as possible. And so we are making those infrastructure changes to help the space feel more safe. Back with our guest after the break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Lisa, you have such a storied history of nonprofit leadership. I, I do want to point out that you worked for the Milken Institute back in the day. You were the former director of external affairs. You worked for the Biden Cancer Initiative, which unfortunately, when when Bo passed, became a thing as the former senior director for patient and public engagement and now at the Smith Center. What trends have you seen from research and perception in the general public about is there a cure? What are we doing now? Do I know what's happening? Should I get a test to prevent something? Yeah, it's amazing how much I think people are much more aware of cancer, um, sadly. And I think that's partly because I don't think anyone doesn't know anyone at this point that doesn't hasn't been touched by it, either in your own family or a co- colleague or a friend. So I think cancer is just in people's faces. And I do think that some of the concerns people had around screening and getting tested and doing certain things. Like I just had a bunch of friends, like in the last week, like everybody was given the colonoscopy. Like it was just like, what is this colonoscopy week? Um, but I was, it was just kind of funny. I had like three or four friends in a row saying, yeah, I'm doing my colonoscopy prep right now. And I'm like, okay. But I was really heartened to hear that 
because we're, you know, we're seeing so many and younger people getting colon cancer. So I'm like, good, get that colonoscopy done. Let's do that kind of screening. So I do think there, there is a little more engagement in, yeah, I should probably do some of these screening tests and be a little more preventative here. Uh, in terms of, is there going to be a cure? Why aren't we there yet? I think, you know, I think that we've, the war on cancer, you know, has been going on for a long time. And, and the one thing when I started working at Faster Cures, which is, you know, the Milken Institute, you know, that 17 years it takes to get to a, a, a drug or a treatment is just like that, that in 17 years is unbelievably ridiculous. Like you can't tell me like that this is really how this works. And that, and that was like one of the eye-opening things I learned when I started that job, just like, you've got to be kidding. Right. And there's like, no, we are not kidding. And so while that has continued, we'd also have seen the amazing breakthroughs that have come through immunotherapy and all these other things. So things are moving in the right direction. And, and I would say the most important piece of that and the piece that I'm most heartened by and started to also see while I was at Faster Cures and then continued that trend in with my time at Biden Cancer is the importance of these companies and others finally talking to actual patients and the people that really need to know, like really, you need to really hear from. And so for so long, it was baffling to understand why the patient was the afterthought in all the stuff that you were doing. That should be the first place you go to learn, to understand as you do this. And so one thing that I'm heartened to see still is all the ways that patient voice, although we can go light years more, is starting to be more amplified. And you're a big piece of that with what you're doing right now as well. And it's, it's vitally, vitally important. Fran Drescher once said after she was diagnosed with, I think she had endometrial cancer, she said stage one is the cure. And I like the allegory, like what she was going for, because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an anti-proponent to prevention in the sense that can you really prevent anything? I mean, maybe you just don't get a pet and you prevented pet ownership, but what can you actually prevent? And, you know, you look at like athletes get cancer and young people do nothing wrong and kids still get leukemia. But from the perspective of odds, right, are there better ways today? I, I think there are to try to not get it. And has society finally caught up to the idea of maybe I shouldn't do this? Or do you have to have like a family history where you're already kind of woke to risk? Oh, that is such a good question. A really powerful one, because I think anyone who has a family risk is going to be a little more aware. But I think that people are starting to get it. You know, we did a we did a as part of our 25th anniversary, we've been talking to really notable leaders in Smith Center's history or just in oncology and integrative oncology in particular. And, And we were talking to one of the leading professors in the field, and he said something like, we know what to do. And, and I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, eat healthy. Don't smoke. Don't eat a lot of junk food. Don't eat a lot of, you know, don't do all that crap. Exercise and do the, and it was just like, oh, <laughs> those things, which we've been talking about forever, but they matter, but right. they matter and they, and they are important. So that definitely does lower your risk factors, right? You know, sadly, obesity is a huge issue, right? Our horrible nutrition issues, all of that play a part. And you want to, I look at it this way. What can you do to make your body the most inhospitable host as possible, like that you can do on your own, right? And and some of that is 
not ingesting all the, you know, bad stuff that's out there, you know, and treating your body as good as it, it can possibly be. And obesity is like, it's become this like bad thing to talk about because, you know, fat shaming is bad and no one should fat shame. I was fat shamed as a kid because oh, I was yeah, a fat too. kid. Same. But yeah. I don't like to ruffle feathers as much as perhaps I used to, but body positive is a negative thing. And I'll say that we cited this on my Vaxxon show a couple of weeks ago, 78% of the COVID deaths in the United States were right. obese people. And I'm not blaming people for being no. obese because it's what it is. And I hate to just sweep it under the rug, but to the extent that this country per se, you know, why can't we talk about this without it being offensive? And yes, if you're obese and you live an unhealthy lifestyle, are you aware that that's bad for you? Well, I, well, I think if, you know, I think you probably know it's bad for you, but who knows what else is going on in their lives, right? And so the fact that they may have a weight problem and are struggling around that, like is, is so low on the totem pole of other things we're dealing with that they, that, you know, that they just, they can't deal with it. It's, but it's a, but it's something that we are going to have to get a handle on. Like we really, we really are. Right. And for any haters listening now, I'm obese. So I'm speaking about this and I've had a weight issue my entire life and I eat healthy and I do what I can. And I'm at risk because like fucking had cancer 25 years ago. Right. So, you know, there's only so much you can do as a person, but you're right. There's, I mean, there's only so much you can do, but, but as best as you can to take care of yourself, you know, and yeah. And that, and the obesity and the weight conversation is a whole different conversation because that is like, don't get me started on like that, because <laughs> that's like I said, that's a whole other <laughs> conversation. I have, I have a lot of theories about some of what that is about in, but that anyway, but I think your, your point is well taken. It's like, so what can you do? And the other thing is that people I hope are willing to speak up when there's something wrong. Like I'll, I'll use my mom as an example. She was having all sorts of symptoms of some sort that she kind of just didn't speak of. Now, granted, my mom had, had ovarian cancer and those symptoms are so like just confusing and could be any other thing that any person and particularly a woman might be dealing with. And so, so she kind of poo-pooed, ignored whatever them for a while until it just progressed a little more and progressed a little more and progressed, you know, so by the time she finally couldn't ignore them anymore, you know, she was diagnosed at stage three. Now to Fran Drescher's point, if she had just mentioned offhand to her doctor, you know, this has been going on, it's probably nothing, but I just thought I would tell you, perhaps, you know, they could have caught it sooner, but, so I think some of this is being willing to speak up and voice something that seems maybe not so serious, but maybe I should just mention it. And I think this is where when we get with doctors, we don't like to speak up. And I think particularly women, I say particularly older women like my mom, like there was like, a, you just didn't do that. And so what I'm pleased to see is I think there's a more of an empowered person who's like, no, who's really more advocating for yourself and for your needs to like push, like, no, something's not right. And so people need to trust themselves. Cause I have a feeling my mom knew something wasn't right, but she didn't trust herself enough to bring it up. And then when she did, that set us on the path that we went down. And perhaps if she could have mentioned something sooner, we might've been on a different path or we may have been on the same one, 
but I think she knew more than she was letting on for longer than she. And it is a very complicated calculus to to kind of run those numbers, yeah. and and I we we talk about a lot. You know, I've given talks about what I call the chutzpah delta, you know, which is how much moxie do you have when you're born, and how much moxie can you develop over time to ask questions and be proactive and not be afraid. And it's very, very generational, as you pointed out. My grandparents weren't this way. My parents are a little proactive, but they're not really as precocious as me or some of the people that I know that are demanding second, third, fourth opinions. That's right. And I think it definitely is a generational thing. And I, you know, my mom was going through some difficult side effects from one of her chemo treatments and she never said anything. So finally she spoke up about how awful she was feeling. And they were like, why didn't you tell us? And she was like, I didn't know I was allowed. I thought this was just the medicine y'all were giving me. This is the treatment plan. And I didn't have a voice here. And they're like, no, we'll stop this right now. I wish you'd spoken up sooner. You know, it was just like, huh, you know, people are much more empowered to speak up now. And I think that's, and I think that helps as we try to think about prevention, whatever that looks like. But some of that is you being your own best advocate, which is not easy to do, but is desperately needed, especially in our current health system, which we also don't want to get down that rabbit hole either. That's another show for sure. Totally. Perhaps with bourbon. That's another show with bourbon. (laughs) I'd love to wrap up the time we have left with you sharing some leadership life hacks as a nonprofit executive in the time of COVID. It's not something you plan to have one day. No one goes to school to say, I can't wait to run a nonprofit during a pandemic. But what were the big lessons that you learned that you could share to any listeners that might be in that space? Oh, my goodness. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll add to that. Like, no one wants to ever be like a nonprofit leader in the middle of a pandemic. And you've just passed your 90-day mark on the job. So like, so I had literally just passed my 90 day mark, was just starting to figure out. I knew sort of where things were and I was no longer drinking from the fire hose when the high fire hose basically exploded in my face. Right. Because we had to close and we had to figure everything out. Right. Um, So I think the thing that quickly became apparent is that you just have to do whatever you can, you know, as, as quickly as you can, but you still need to think. Right. And I think the instinct, everybody was kind of like, we got to run, 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 run. And it was like, no, like, what do we do next? And there was so much incoming information that it was pretty overwhelming. But I quickly, you know, sort of fell in with a bunch of other EDs again, right? Community. And so very quickly, I found out about a group of EDs that was, was meeting. And I was like, I need to be a part of that. And so, because I'm 90 days in, it's my first time as an ED. So I am like, Whatever I thought I knew just got blown out of the water. And so the biggest thing I can tell someone who's in this moment, this particular moment, is I realized also no one else knew what they were doing either. So even that seasoned leader who's been around for whatever many years leading an organization, they'd never led one in a pandemic either. So we were all sort of on the same playing field, even, you know, but just maybe in different times. The biggest thing I can say is, is lean in. And, and check in on your team, you know, and I, and I really tried to do that. We're a small staff. And so I really was like checking in on everybody, making sure everybody was okay. Cause everybody really just jumped in there and was really, really working really hard, really fast. And so I wanted to make sure everybody was okay. And I tried to reassure everybody that we were fine, that we were okay. Cause then you started hearing about people laying people off and jobs being lost. And so 
the anxiety level was high. And so I just want to let everybody know that right now we're okay. Everybody's okay. You know, and then we were just going after the, you know, the PPP and all that stuff. It was just like trying to figure out as much as we could to shore up the financials. And, and again, it was just being dogged and like reading every email and following up on everything, like just all that stuff. So it was just- Well, feather in your cap, because the ship's still there. Exactly. That's, that's what I say to people. When people say, how are you doing? I'm like, we're still here. Everyone kept their jobs and we're still being able to serve our community. And so I'll take that as a win. I may be a little, have a little more gray hair and I haven't, maybe haven't slept <laughs> as much as I need to. You know? And I guess the other thing I would say for any leader- and it's something that me and my little cohorts of EDs have been all trying to say to each other, put the oxygen mask on you before you help others. I mean, we are all committed to our organizations and to our communities, but if we don't take care of ourselves, then, you know, we're not helping. And so I know it's hard. Take those days off, you know, like don't neglect yourself because people are depending on you, but you still need to take care of you first and you can't lose sight of your own health and your own well-being, even though, because we're all really mission-driven. I know I am very mission-driven, but I can't sacrifice myself for the mission either. Last question. Had you ever used Zoom before the pandemic or you're like, what is this Zoom thing? I had used Zoom a little bit. I can assure you that I, I have never been on so much Zoom in my life. <laughs> and I hope... Not to be for some period of time. I mean, I know we're. I know that we're now going to be in this life where I think things are going to be more hybrid, and Zoom isn't going anywhere. And and on the one hand, it's been amazing. It's been able to help us continue to be there for people. It's been able to bring people together. But I can't wait to be able to see people not in a little box on a screen. You know, I had dinner with a friend the other night in person, and we probably hugged each other for a good five minutes. I haven't seen her in a year and a yeah. half. It was just nice. To, it was just that. nice to see a human being again. And yeah. I can't thank you for your leadership over all these years. And and by the way, for the listeners, Zoom, not a sponsor. I just wanted to throw that question in there for Lisa. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Like I said, long time coming, but so worth it. Lisa Sims Booth is the executive director of the Smith Center for Healing and the Arts. You can learn more about them at smithcenter.org. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seeley, Jen Orange, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seeley. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. Wow. 
Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.